It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the news meeting. Each week we bring you into the newsroom to hear the arguments that happen in meetings just like this every day. I'm Sonia Soda. I'm chief leader writer and a columnist at The Observer, so I've been to a fair few of these meetings myself. I was also a senior advisor to Ed Miliband when he was leader of the opposition. In this episode of the news meeting, I'll be deciding what should lead the news, what follows and in what order. Three journalists are going to pitch their top story of the week to me, and together we're going to try and make sense of what we know, what it means, and most importantly, which one should top the running order. So from Podimo and Tortoise, this is The News Meeting. So James Harding, our normal presenter, is away this week, and it's great to be here as a guest editor on The News Meeting. I'm very much looking forward to the power it gives me. I'm joined by, first of all, Jeevan Vassiger. He's Tortoise's climate editor and a former FT correspondent in Singapore and Berlin. He's also a former Nairobi correspondent for The Guardian. This is his second time on the news meeting. Hi, Jeevan. Hey, Sonia. Jane Bruton is also from Tortoise. She was deputy editor of The Daily Telegraph and was editor-in-chief of Grazia magazine. She's been in the news business for decades, but this is her first time on the news meeting. Great to have you here, Jane. Good morning. And Mark St. Andrew organises all the live events at Tortoise. This is his fourth time on the show, but he's still yet to take the top spot. Hi, Mark. Hi, Sonia. So this is a bit different to the news meetings that I'm used to, uh, because the way we're running this one is Jeevan, Jane and Mark are going to pitch me one story each. Normally at a newspaper news conference, you'll have people arriving either with a notebook full of ideas or no ideas at all. Uh, Sometimes a room can be very quiet indeed, which is obviously a bit troubling if you're looking to fill a newspaper. Uh, But that's not going to be the case today. Together, we're going to try and figure out what we really know about each story, why it matters and whether it should be leading the news. But before we hear from each of our contributors, here's a quick reminder of some stories from the week. I'm not expecting violins here, but I am a human being as well as a politician. Nicola Sturgeon will step down as Scotland's First Minister. There is a much greater intensity, dare I say it, brutality to life as a politician. It's not a planet. What the heck is that? There is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity. I'm just, you know, I loved E.T., the movie, but I'm I'm just going to leave it there. If you don't like the changes that we've made, I say 
the door is open and you can here in Syria, you don't see the international rescue teams. You don't see an international aid effort to help uh, the people on the ground. I don't put up with bullets. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president. So those are some of the stories from the past week. But what do my guests think mattered most? Let's start with long stories short. In a single sentence, Jeevan, what have you picked? Electric shock. Ah, very good. Two words. Jane, what's your top line? Mine is build back better a la Modi. Very good. And Mark, over to you. Sturgeon surprise. Excellent. So we've got our three um, pictures, headline pictures. Uh, Jane, surely your headline should have been menace a la Modi. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't sledge my headline. We haven't even got started yet, Jeeva. He did that to me last time as well. Yeah. <laughs> I'll deduct some points for that, Jeevan. <laughs> right, let's get to unpicking them in some more detail, though. So, Jeevan, first of all, I'd like you to tell me what your story is about and why you think it matters. So, Ford announced this week that they're cutting more than a thousand jobs in the UK. Mm-hmm. This is part of a bigger package of job cuts across Europe. And the reason they've given is that electric cars need fewer workers to assemble. They're simpler, they have fewer parts than internal combustion engines. Uh, and the figure they've given is that they'll need 40% fewer workers, which is mm-hmm. obviously a lot. Mm. So, this is a business story. But the reason I think it's important is that it isn't just a story about one company, it isn't just a story about one industry. We're obviously in the middle of an industrial revolution, the green transition. It's really the biggest change the world has, has seen since the 19th century. Uh, And there will be new jobs created. But overall, it's quite likely there'll be fewer jobs overall. And and the reason for that is because the green transition is going to be accompanied by more digitisation. So when companies become greener, they'll buy their latest kit, which will need fewer humans. Um, And a lot of the green jobs that will be created will also be one-offs. So installing new equipment, retrofitting houses, um, which obviously those will will fall away. So if you think about this for a moment, you realise this isn't just a business story. This is a story about society. It's a story about politics. So there are going to be new green jobs. There are going to be sustainability officers at companies, for example. But are they going to be in places like Dunton in Essex, where Ford is cutting uh, hundreds of jobs? Or are they going to be white-collar jobs? So this is really, when you look at it closely, it's a story about inequality. And it's also a story about what government does. So it's obviously businesses, companies that make investment decisions, but it's governments that create the framework for that. So in the US, you have this massive climate legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act. They're providing subsidies, um, enormous amounts of government aid for, for green business. The EU is also thinking of looking at doing something very similar. What's the UK doing? Under Rishi Sunak, nothing very much. So the reason I think this is really interesting is we're often told as voters about the Green Revolution and how the Green Revolution is win-win because it's going to deliver more jobs for us. And you, you hear less about the sorts of jobs they're going to be. We're just told, you know, they're the high-skilled jobs of the future. Uh, we need to be training more young people to be working in the low-carbon industries of the future. Um, so this is this is kind of puts a slightly different um, spin on that, I suppose. Um to what extent do you think this has got... Well, well, first of all, I guess the question is, what does this mean for the future of the car industry in the UK? Uh, because obviously, you know, back at the, in the financial crisis, there were huge efforts in government to uh, sort of protect the future of the car industry in the UK. It was something that government was very proud of. So I guess that would be my first question for you. 
So this is um, a question that brings in our old friend Brexit because uh, mm-hmm. the UK car industry... Well, is... that was my second question. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the UK car industry, as we know, is an export industry. It exports to the world, but actually it primarily exports to Europe. So we need to be aligned with, with what the EU is doing. We need to be able to match what the EU is doing in terms of subsidy. So... It is a critical question for the UK. Are we going to have a manufacturing industry? Are we going to have a car industry in a decade's time? And a few weeks ago on the news meeting, we discussed the story of, of British Vault, uh, the car battery startup that has just collapsed that was in Blythe in Northumberland. Um, this is another straw in the wind. And what it really is telling us is that the government doesn't really have a strategy. The government doesn't have a policy. It isn't setting direction. Um, other countries are pushing ahead with providing subsidies, with creating the framework, with thinking about the skills that people need. Our government really isn't doing that, and we're in danger of being left behind. There's no advantage in going second when it comes to the green transition. You've got to be in there from Mm. the start. And I think another question I would have as an editor is about whether you would be able to put this sort of transition, the scale of this sort of transition, what it might mean for people, because I think that's the most interesting thing in this story. What does it mean for people who are in their 20s today? What kind of labour market they're going to be working in? Would you be able to put that in the context of changes we've seen in the labour market in the past? So, for example, in what happened in the in the 1980s with um, deindustrialisation? Um, you know, is that is that something you'd be able to do as part of this story? Yes, absolutely. So, um, I mean, fossil fuels have for the last 200 years provided the energy base of our civilization. Um, oil, coal and gas have been absolutely central. We're now switching to completely new power sources. We're switching to completely new technologies. And I think the key thing here is that it's coupled with other trends. So it's coupled with the trend of globalization. We've seen how much, how rapidly China has moved into this space, how much of our production of uh, clean technology, solar panels, for example, is now dominated by China. And the other trend that this is combined with this digitization and AI. So these are all kind of uh, factors that are going to be hitting jobs, hitting particularly manufacturing jobs. And I just want to stress that point, actually, about blue-collar jobs, because that's something that's often overlooked in this question. When we talk about kind of job creation, we count all the white-collar jobs and we count kind of different kinds of different kinds of work and skilled work and we don't think about skilled working class jobs and I think there's a real kind of inequality question coming up that has to be dealt with as part of the green transition. Interesting. Jane what do you make of Jeevan's pitch? Yeah I mean my uh, that my, my thought is very much about education um, it doesn't seem to me that much is being done mm-hmm. to um, address this earlier on and it's not just people in their 20s I mean that you know we need to be addressing this from primary school upwards don't we so um, as a mother of two um, you know boys at university you know these things do worry me a lot and what about you mark um i think the numbers when when people talk about the green revolution and the green economy in in terms of job numbers are always really interesting and uh, well they're interesting but they're quite hard to get your head around because they're always so big they're always expressed in oh there's 1.2 million jobs in this and 2.1 billion there and it's hard I, I think that there is a space where someone could actually make sense of what that means in everyday life. Um, I do think the blue collar roles thing is interesting as well because some of these people in those roles have already trained once already because industries have been, you know, there's been seismic changes in, in, in some of them. And I think asking people to sort of continually retrain is, is, is a big ask. And at some point, lots of people will just drop out. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, we're getting lots of headlines about um, over 50s um, not coming back into mm-hmm. into the job market. Um, so, you know, but but can you be retrained to do what's needed? We're all going to become um, no. personal trainers and nurses, yeah. aren't we? Because that's or, the only thing that or AI Or just go on holiday touch. a lot. Yeah, they'll do that. Smart. 
Right, Jane, over to you. Can you tell me a bit more about your story and why you think it should be leading uh, the headlines this week? I can. So on Tuesday this week, when I started thinking about this podcast, two stories broke them separately. They were both really good stories, very newsworthy. But together, I think they make a much bigger story that I reckon is worthy of leading the news this week. So the first one was a breaking story that Indian tax police were raiding the BBC's offices in New Delhi and Mumbai. Um, Now, officials um, at the time said it had nothing whatsoever to do with a recent BBC documentary re-examining Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's alleged role in the sectarian violence that killed 2,000 people in his home state of Gujarat in 2002. So the official explanation was that the raid was a survey, um, but, you know, let's be honest, that isn't entirely credible. 50 tax inspectors were involved, phones were taken. In reality, it isn't much of a story to see this as a retaliation um, for the recent BBC Mm -hmm. documentary India, the Modi question or even, you know, worse than that a sinister attempt to silence journalists and find out who their sources are Um, Modi's ruling BJP party has been extremely vocal about the film, calling it garbage from a colonial mindset um, and they've tried to have it it banned Um, Why? Because the main findings of the film are based on a previously unseen report um, that that the 2000 violence um, was much more serious than than, um, was previously Mm -hmm. thought, um, that it included the systematic rape and murder of Muslim women and that it bore all the hallmarks of ethnic cleansing. Um, And Modi's personal role um, gets a thorough going over in the film as well. Obviously, Modi denies all this and his supporters, um, 230 million of them at the last election, love him for reviving Indian pride, cutting red tape, getting highways built across the country. Now, on to the second story. The same morning the BBC was being raided, a government press release landed in business editors' inboxes, hailing a 470-plane deal signed by Air India and Airbus as a big win for Britain. Of course, so this would have been a marvellous, um, upbeat story had it not been for the fact that mm-hmm. India at that very moment were effectively throwing a grenade at press freedom. Um, so where does that leave Sunak? Clearly, the PM is going to be anxious not to cause offence. Um, I mean, here it is, a, a bit of light at the end of the, of the tunnel, um, a rare opportunity to show there are Brexit benefits after all. But, you know, wait, shouldn't the British government be mounting um, a very robust um, defence of the independence of our great national institution, the BBC? What I really like about this pitch is because I think the press freedom, obviously, as a journalist, I think it's incredibly important and incredibly worthy. But it can be quite hard to get readers in the UK engaged in a story about press freedom on the other side of the world, even if it is to do with the BBC. What I like is the way that your pitch has really related that to a British political story, which is what does this mean for Britain's role post-Brexit and does this create a dilemma for the Prime Minister? And do you see a way of relating it to the broader point about Brexit? I mean, you were hinting at it there in your pitch about Brexit puts us in a very different position in relation to some countries, some regimes, 
where actually uh, we may not be wanting to get so cosy with, but economically we're being pushed more towards them because we've sort of cut ourselves off from our biggest trading partner. Well, that's exact. That's the nut. That's the crux of the story, isn't yeah. it? I mean, that that is the big problem. Um, you know, it's difficult enough as we've seen. Um, you know, in recent weeks and and before that, dealing with with China, which isn't a democracy. Now, India is democ- a democracy, um, but what we're seeing is is worrying. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, all, all of this, you know. Um, is 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 a real problem um for for britain and for the government um i mean dealing with the eu compared to what we're dealing with now looks like a walk in the park frankly mm-hmm. mark what do you make of jane's pitch um so you told it amazingly and i i did start to wonder if you were slightly cheating by sort of rolling three stories into one <laughs> And I, I, and I think that's very much allowed, actually. Okay. And I set the rules. <laughs> Fine. Okay. Um, but I, I think that the, um, I mean, he's got. They've got form for this in India, right? I think this is the fourth or fifth news organisation that's been been raided after saying, um, uh, publishing something that the government wasn't very happy with. Does this have a major impact? Do stories like this have a major impact on how the Modi government is perceived internationally, or? Are we kind of overstating its importance because it's the BBC and... Yeah, well, I th- I'd say it's not just the BBC. It's, it's I think the um, you know um, Modi has been courted by a lot of um, governments for the reason that in India is you know a mass you know growing democracy. Um, there's a lot you know a lot of education educated people there. From our point of view, a lot of people speak English. It seems like an ideal um, trading partner. Jeevan, what's your take? So I think I think there's absolutely something rotten in the state of Indian democracy. This is an important story for that reason. I think one key reason why it's important is that I think it shows there are no limits. So if they'll go after the foreign press, they'll clearly kind of do, they'll attempt to do the, to the foreign press what they've done to the, the domestic press. What I wonder about is um, whether this is truly a story about the UK in any way. Jane mentioned Airbus. I was slightly puzzled about that because I thought that Airbus was a company based in Toulouse. Um, I might be wrong that much on my ignorance of the sector. Perhaps they have UK suppliers. I don't think this is really, I think this is a really important story. I think it's a story about India. I don't think it's particularly about the UK. So it depends on whether we think our our audience, our news judgments are being shaped by what matters to people in the UK. And if that's the case, then I wouldn't put this at the top of the running order. I do think it matters, though. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Mark, over to you for your pitch. Nicola Sturgeon, who, um, as we know yesterday, called a surprise press conference to announce her resignation. 
Um, she's been first minister for eight years uh, and she's uh, the fifth and longest serving first minister um, of Scotland. And I think while people sort of knew that there was some mood music that, that she was thinking about moving on, um, everybody, it seems, was quite surprised by the timing of it. Um, and it was it was a long, long resignation speech. It was quite humble, um, very human. Uh, she's a formidable communicator. And she went to great pains to point out that her reason for leaving had nothing to do with what she called short-term pressures, which is a new euphemism for the gender recognition uh, bill. Um, and... It's. I think it's. It's interesting. I think a lot of the the coverage immediately was kind of looking at her legacy, and then the next step of coverage mm. was looking at who's going to step in. And I think that is a really, really interesting question. But the whole um, what it kicks off is a whole bigger discussion mm. around the future of independence, which isn't quite as clear cut as 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 it used to be. Um, I think when you look back to twenty fourteen to the last referendum. The uh, when Alex Salmond was was up, up until then, Alex Salmond was still in charge. The argument was quite clear cut. It was like you know Scotland, we should be an independent country, sort of almost like a nineteenth century sovereign state, and that's great. We've got the oil, we can make it work. And I think Nicola's legacy and and still unanswered question actually is what actually does what what does independence look like now? Because I'm not sure it's that clear cut. And when you've had a political party that's been dominated by such a strong leader, I mm. mean, for a lot of people outside of Scotland, she's possibly one of only a handful of SNP politicians that people could even name. They've always presented quite a unified front. But what's been clear over the past few months is that the cracks have started to show on all sorts of issues. And now she goes, this leadership debate is good, or the leadership contest is going to throw open lots of questions. And I think there's going to have to be a lot of soul searching amongst the SNP membership um, as to where they go from here mm. and what they're actually fighting for. I mean, to say they're fighting for independence, yes, but what does independence look like? So I think that's quite a big moment in UK politics. Mm. So I think the danger with a big political story like this a couple of days after it breaks is there's been so much coverage, as you say, mm -hmm. of, you know, what happened, why did it happen, runners and riders. What I do like about the pitch is it is seeking to move it forward in terms of what it means. I guess my question for you is what are the things coming up, for example, that you might hook this on? The gender recognition bill, not to sort of get into the weeds of that, did show maybe the first time that you had uh, 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 the leadership was out of step with the rest of the country. And if they're out of step on that, what else are they out mm. of step on? We don't hear very much outside of Scotland of when things go wrong, really. Um, I think one of the reasons Nicola Sturgeon has such an amazing reputation is out, down, down here in London. Does she have an amazing reputation? I, I, well, she, she probably, I, I would say that there's probably a thing where commentators in Westminster tend to look on her more favourably because they don't understand the yeah. domestic record. But I would also say that there's, I think there are, have been quite mixed reviews of her lately. In, in 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 London as well. Yeah, I mean that's that's fair, but I think that you know there is consensus that she she had a great pandemic, for instance. Yeah, you know, I think and, on the pandemic. Yeah. And 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 you know she's a, like I say a fearsome communicator. Things have started to unravel with with gender recognition and everything else. But I think to your point about Westminster uh, commentators don't understand what's going on in Scottish politics. I think we also don't really hear what's going on in Scotland 
anyway, we, we hear about, oh, the education attainment thing didn't quite work out, and we hear about the drug deaths, but we never really understand them. Whereas in England, or our, the failures of the NHS and the UK education system, they are known nationally. So there's a kind of disparity. So we know about all of the failures. Scotland know all about of our failures, but we don't really understand what's going on there. So I think a kind of painting a really accurate picture of what's gone on in Scotland under SNP uh, leadership and how that sort of builds a foundation for where they go next. Great. I'm going to come to Jeevan now for your take on that. Um, so this is obviously a kind of a really big story, but also a kind of story that I think is somehow kind of curiously empty. I think as far as Sturgeon is concerned, I think politicians, when they leave office, they very quickly become irrelevant. So I'm not interested in her. I'm not really interested in the politics of Holyrood. I am interested in some of the kind of unanswered questions that, that you touched on, uh, Mark. So one of them is, is Scotland a viable country after independence? But actually, what's more interesting for me, two things. One of them is, is the SNP good at government? So I'm, I'm, I'm naturally, I'm always opposed to nationalist parties because I think always and everywhere, nationalist politics becomes toxic. But I would genuinely, honestly be interested to know, have they done a good job on health? Have they done a good job on education? And I think if you were a sort of data-led newsroom, you'd think about, is there a way to interrogate this through data? The other thing I'd really like to know, and I'd, I'd love to hear from a Scot from, so I've always kind of thought it was interesting that you look at Wales and you look at Scotland, and Wales, the Welsh have, a, have their language, they have their culture, it's really strong, they, don't, they appear to have very little desire for independence. The Scots perhaps have a less clear sense of distinction from England people might jump on me for that but but also quite a strong desire for independence so i'd love to hear from a scot about what being scottish means exactly how does it express itself you know yep. how do you define yourself as scottish how has that changed jane um well i completely disagree with jeevan um in that i am very still interested still very interested in fact <laughs> in um nicola sturgeon and her reputation as we, we were talking about before mm. um because going back to your headline um mark yes Yesterday was a big surprise. It was. Um, and why now? That's what mm. I'm as, as, asking. What has driven this um, announcement? Um, I don't buy at all the um, Jacinda Ardern, oh, no. I'm burnt Agreed. out um, <laughs> uh, uh, line. Um, so um, I, I'm not sure it's about gender recognition. It's not just about Sturgeon. It's about how the SNP itself is run, um, which is going to be a really important um, thing to get your head around going forward. So I think my issue with the story, so I think it is a massive leading story, but we've now got about three things in the mix, three angles on it. We've got, um, you know, what might independence look like in Scotland? We've got what's the SNP's track record in government? And I can see a way that you would link those two, but I think it has to be done quite carefully. And I, I agree with Jane rather than Jeevan, actually. I'm really, you know, I was really surprised. I was convinced Sturgeon would go for longer. And it came as a real shock, actually. To, there were a few commentators who were saying she might go, but they weren't predicting so quickly. And there has to be a story there. Um, yeah. And I think it is partly she's not used to the mauling she's got in the press in the last three months. And I think right. that has probably hit her quite hard personally. And I think that's a, that's an interesting... I'm interested mm. personally in that because she has been such an important figure in British politics. You never so saw long. her flustered. Like never seen her flustered. Been, yeah. but, but, you know, there is more stuff to come out here. So I'm very interested in us pursuing that so I I think we you know we've got to pick we've got to pick an angle so I think the angle is a combination of the future of independence and how that future is forged against a backdrop of 
the things that have happened within the SNP. Mm-hmm. Because if the SNP is the driving force of independence, then the things that are going on within that party will shape mm. the w- what any future strategy looks like and the tenor of conversation mm. that, that, that they use to lead towards it. Right. We are now going to move on to deciding the running order. So I'm going to come to all of you, first of all, to find out what story you think should lead. Obviously, you can't pick your own. So, Jeevan, I'm coming to you first. Which out of the two are you going for? So I think that Sturgeon uh, has to be the lead. Uh, I think that's the sort of big political story. And I think we'd like to understand more about kind of what it means for Scotland. Um, India feels to me like a big story, one that is critical for India, critical for the country that's going to be the biggest country in the world in a few years' time. Um, but not one that directly affects the UK right now. Great. And Jane? I um, agree that um, the Sturgeon story is the biggest story of the week, but I am concerned that we're not sure um, what our angle really is here. That was really harsh. (laughs) I think that... I've actually changed my mind three times during the course of this, (laughs) but I, I, I think it has to be the the green economy Mm -hmm. story, simply because there's just so many conflicting numbers around in it. And I'm kind of reaching an age now where I'm sort of worried about what will happen. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, I don't want to retrain as a as a electric vehicle (laughs) builder. Um, I'd be awful at it. So yeah, I I think something to make sense of all of the numbers in green jobs, the green economy, uh, the shifting in the in the labour market, I I would like to understand that a lot more. The India thing is really interesting, but as I've said before, it's three different stories rolled into one, no, and I think that's cheating. That, no, that is not cheating, Mark. Totally that cheating. is finding the big story from a lot of the stories mm. that are going on. Three big on. stories. <laughs> well, the is good that like news trifle is, trifle is your favourite pudding, Jane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you two, you've had a conversation before this. I can tell. Well, the good news is none of you get to decide. I am the editor. <laughs> I get to decide, having listened to all of your excellent pitches. Um, the one, one thing I will say is that I thought you all pitched excellently and these are three very worthy and important stories. So maybe I'm a bit nicer than James in, in <laughs> prefacing what I say with that. But this is a running order that I'm going to go with. So I think we need to lead with Sturgeon. Yes! I share Jane's concern, though. I think your pitch could have been a bit sharper, Mark. Right. I, th- I, th- I think... There were multiple angles, but the angle I'm going to commission you to go in is where we were getting to in that conversation, which is why now? I think that's a really key question. Why did Nicola Sturgeon resign now, not in two years' time? And what does it mean for the future of Scotland? Perfect. Uh, So that's going to be our angle. Uh, It's such a big political story. I think we have to go with it. And there is so much there. So, you know, I do understand why you came with quite quite a lot. Uh, But I think we had to sort of sharpen it up a bit. Second, I'm going with Jane's story. Um, I disagree with Mark. I don't. I think you know. Uh, uh, it's great to be able to roll three stories into one. I do. The thing that swung it for me is uh, I like it when it can be related to the big picture and the big questions. I think Jeevan's story very much has that angle too, but yours is very immediate. What is Britain's role post Brexit, and how do we make sense of these relationships that we're going to need to rely on more because of mm. what's going on with Brexit in the EU? But actually, some of those relationships put us in quite a difficult position in foreign policy terms when and you know I think you can see that with China for example I think you can see it in the Middle East so I do think that it's a, a way of taking quite a worthy story 
uh, that is important in its own right, but maybe doesn't relate that much to readers, uh, but actually putting it in the context of the big picture about mm-hmm. Britain's future. And Jeevan, I have to say, I loved your pitch. Um, I think it's fascinating and really interesting. I just think, and I think these questions are so important. I just think they are very long-term questions for us as the UK. And they're absolutely things we have to be discussing. And maybe as editor, I'm falling into exactly the same trap as the government. We're not thinking about what's in the horizon in 30 years time because we're too busy about you know the runners and riders in in Scotland over the next kind of three months so maybe I am guilty of that but that's not to say we won't run your story we'll make it really good um but I think it does need to come third because it is so long term sure harsh <laughs> but fair I feel I contributed to your to your win Mark so you're welcome <laughs> I, I feel like Mark I feel like Mark was just onto a winner coming in here because he walked in with the big political story it's about of the time win. I lose all the time <laughs> Right, well, that's it for this week's news meeting. Thank you to Jeeve and Jane and Mark for bringing the stories and to you for listening. Jane's will be back in the editor's chair next week, so you may be facing a slightly uh, tougher editor when another trio of tortoises' top journalists will try to convince him that they've got the story that matters most. Join them next time on the news meeting. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopone. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring. And so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.